Hello friends, welcome to the Hillside Church Podcast. My name is Brad and I serve Hillside Church as the lead pastor. We're so glad to be able to share God's word with you in this way. God has so much in store for you and for your life. And one of the ways God works in our lives is through the study of his word, like the message you're about to hear. Our prayer for you is that as you share in this message, if it's me preaching or if it's someone else, is that God's word would minister to your heart and life in a most powerful way. Thanks again for being part of our church family. God bless you. This week, we're continuing our sermon series called The Old Rugged Cross, as we look at the words of Jesus that he spoke from the cross. And if you'd like to follow along in God's word, you can turn to Matthew chapter 27. Um, That's where we're going to be this morning. We're going to be starting into our text at verse 45. And we're actually going to be there pretty quickly this morning. So if you're going to turn there, I invite you to turn there right away. Like I said, we've been looking at the words that Jesus spoke as he hung on the cross. That as Jesus was paying the penalty for our sins, as Jesus was dying on the cross, what were the things that he said? What were the things that he spoke? And as we've been approaching Easter, this has been our guide. And this week, we're actually going to pick up the story of Jesus on the cross directly following the interaction that we had, or that we looked at, that Jesus had last week with, with the criminal that we talked about. And we're gonna, but we're going to pick up the story from the book of Matthew. The story happens in, in all the Gospels. Jesus on the cross is a part of all four Gospels. Um, but the story that we looked at in Luke chapter 23 is also recorded in, in Matthew chapter 27. And we're going to pick it up right immediately following that this morning. Because Matthew has a really interesting and important moment, and we're going to talk about why Matthew probably included this specifically a little later, but there's a really interesting moment that we need to unpack. But before we do that, before we dive into the meat of our text today, there's something that I want to, I want to address immediately, because depending on, on which Bible you're reading this morning, immediately as we dive into our text this morning, you might be thrown for a little bit of a loop. You might... So that's not what my Bible says. And so depending on the version of the Bible you have, if we start at verse 45, it might say this. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. Now, if you have your Bible in front of you and you're looking, does anybody's Bible say anything different than that? Yeah, there's, there's quite a number of hands that went up. If I read it from the English Standard Version, it will say, now from the sixth hour, there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. Was it noon till three? Or was it six till nine? That's an interesting non sequitur. Depending on the translation, it certainly seems like maybe there's a contradiction. They both have this three-hour window, but was it noon until three, or was it six until nine? But really, what what is going on here is it all depends on which clock you want to use, whose, whose clock you were wanting to see. Roman time was kept different than Jewish time. Roman hours, as in most modern calendars, even like ours, it was 12 o'clock at noon, and it was 12 o'clock at midnight. While Jewish hours typically ran from the approximate hours of sunrise and sunset, about 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. So if you're looking at a Jewish watch, 
Noon is about six hours after the day starts. Six till 12, six hours. But if you're looking at a Roman watch, it's noon. It's midday. And so for the Bible translators, this, this was simply a question that they wanted to answer. Do you translate the time? And so some of the translations give us time in, in a way the Jewish people would have kept time. That if your Bible says now, from the sixth hour there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour, some variation like that, they're giving you the Jewish time. And some kept it in Roman time, our time. And so if it says it was from noon till three, it's the same time, but it's different. Some translated the time and some didn't. And I just wanted to touch on that this morning because as I, as I move through the text and, and I say, follow along in your Bible, and then immediately your Bible says something different than what I read, you might not totally pay attention to the rest of the sermon. Th that might be like, hmm, well, I've heard all I need to hear here for today. I need to talk to the pastor after this because my Bible's broken. <laughs> but I wanted to, to just make sure that we were on the same page and understood why it might say something different. So let's read this again. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. And so there's this amazing moment where Jesus is on the cross and the sun is darkened. Darkness comes over the land. I want to highlight a couple of things for you about this because this is actually a really remarkable moment because there are a lot of things that happen in this moment that are miraculous and that are incredible. First, it was an unusual darkness. It lasted for about three hours. That's a lot longer than any eclipse would last for. That if you've been a part of a solar eclipse where, where the, the, the moon passes in front of the sun, it's not dark for three hours. And this was especially unique because when the Passover happened, it was a full moon. And it's impossible for there to be a natural eclipse of the sun during a full moon. Because you can't have the moon pass in front of the sun if the moon's on the other side. And so it's, this, it's, it's not just, oh, there was an eclipse. Isn't that a wonderful, wild, clinky dink? That there's something miraculous taking place here. It was not the entire time that Jesus was, was on the cross, but the latter part of that time, according to Mark 15, we can figure that Jesus hung on the cross for about six hours, approximately between nine in the morning and three in the afternoon, Roman time, Jewish time, add six to all of those. Um, the first three hours of Jesus' time on the cross would have been in normal daylight, but then there comes this moment where darkness covers over everything. But something else I want to highlight for you, because this might be helpful for you to know in all of this, is that this event was actually mentioned by historians outside of the biblical record. That we don't read just about this incredible, amazing thing that took place, but it's completely historically unverifiable. And if the earth went dark, or, or even in Jerusalem, if it just went dark for three hours, you'd, you'd think someone would have mentioned it. Well, they did. 
Philegion, who's a Roman historian, wrote about Jerusalem. He, he wasn't a Christian, and he wasn't writing to verify the story of Jesus. He was just writing down the history of the time. He wrote this, in the fourth year of the 202nd Olympiad, which was this time, there was an extraordinary eclipse of the sun at the sixth hour, the day turned into, into dark night, so that the stars in heaven were seen, and there was an earthquake. Maybe that's significant for you. But as we read about this, and sometimes we, we think, wow, look at all this amazing stuff. But some of these things, he had no reason to write that other than that it happened. And as we move through the story of Jesus, what do we discover? There's an extraordinary eclipse of the sun, and there's an earthquake. And Roman historians will agree that this happened. There's one other thing I want to highlight about this moment, and it's actually going to be a theme for us today. This is, this is really going to be our theme for our time this morning. But in this moment, as the sun goes dark, as we read about this, this moment fulfills Old Testament prophecy. There, there's a prophet named Amos, and he spoke these words from God in Amos, what would be Amos chapter 8, verse 9. And on that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon, and darken the earth in broad daylight. So, it was impossible. It was verifiable. And it was prophecy. All in this one moment. And as we read, the sun goes dark. Sometimes we can go, oh, neat. But there's a lot that's taking place even in this moment. And so as the sky has gone dark, we see Jesus speaking the next words that we're going to focus on today. So let's read it again. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness covered the whole land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemai sabachthani. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the most crucial moment of the entire Bible, as Jesus is dying on the cross, he shouts from the cross a phrase that can be puzzling for those of us to re who read the account centuries and millenniums later. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The phrase is found in Matthew 27 and in Luke, or sorry, in Mark 15. Forsake means to turn away from or withdraw from. That when Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you turned away from me? Why have you withdrawn from me? And we can get puzzled by this and we can wonder, why would God do this to his son? We, we talked about all about who God was for, for months at the start of this year. We talked about how God isn't just loving, but God is love. And yet in this moment, he turns away from his son as his son is dying. And we look and, and we think, and I think, as a father, would I do that to my children? It's odd that the source of all love would turn away from his own son, yet this is exactly what Jesus says is happening in this moment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But I want, us, I want to help us to see something else this morning. 
Maybe something even a little bigger. Also something that, that might maybe not challenge your understanding of what's going on here, but at least provide a, a, a much fuller and bigger context. It's not to deny the understanding that you may already have, but to put it into a bigger context. See, in this moment, as Jesus cries out these words on the cross, he's not just speaking the overflow of his heart. Is, is this isn't just something that, that he just says, but he's actually quoting scripture. He's quoting the Bible. And for those Jews gathered around Jesus, remember, we've talked about how there's, an, there's a huge crowd there to see him, and many of those people are very devout religious Jews. And, and so as they've gathered to see Jesus crucified, because they're the ones who wanted him crucified, as they gathered to see him crucified, and as Jesus speaks these words from the cross, they would have recognized them. And it would have done a couple of things for them. First, they would have understood exactly what Jesus was referencing. And second, they would have understood exactly what Jesus was doing by making this reference. See, first, what Jesus was referencing. See, you and I... We, we don't have the Bible memorized the way that Jewish people did back then. Is, is scripture memory, hopefully all of us have some scriptures memorized. And, and undoubtedly there are some scriptures that, that I could quote up here that, that you would maybe be able, I know that. If I said, for God so loved the world, you, you could maybe fill in the blanks from there. Depending on, on how old you are and which translation, it might be a little muddied. Uh, whether it's God sent his one and only son or however we want to say that. But, but there are some scriptures. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow. So there are some scriptures that, that we can point to. But for Jews in this day, the words that Jesus had spoken would be immediately identifiable. Immediately known to them. Like, like if I was to say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. You wouldn't say, wow, he's really poetic. Wow. That, that's tweetable. Can I, my, you know, I'm going to tweet that and be like, look, look at this amazing thing my pastor said this morning. We, we, we know. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I, I wouldn't need to quote the whole thing to you. But for many of us, that, that simple piece of that phrase would be exactly enough to know what I'm referring to. And when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For all of the Jewish people that were gathered that day, they would have known that Jesus was quoting Psalm 22. That immediately they would know that was, this wasn't just Jesus happening to speak the same words as the beginning of Psalm 22, but Jesus is quoting Psalm 22. So what? What does that mean? Well, Psalm 22 is what is called a messianic psalm, which is where the author, and in this case King David, appears to be sharing in some kind of vision of what will happen with the Lord's Messiah. 
that, that David writes out this, this, the, the, these words and they, they appear to be a picture of what the coming Messiah is going to deal with. And so as Jesus stands on, or stands, hangs on the cross and he shares the first line of this psalm, because of the Bible knowledge, the knowledge of the Psalms, the Jews of Jesus' day, most people would have understood that he was referencing the entire psalm. That is, Jesus in this moment hangs on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They would begin to quote verse 2 and verse 3 and their mind would go to 4, 5, 6. And so we can examine Psalm 22 and find the tie-ins to so much of what is taking place in the crucifixion of Jesus. In Psalm 22, verses 6 through 8, it says, David will write that his enemies are mocking him, specifically because he trusts in the Lord, that the Lord would rescue him. So let's read, in Psalm 22, verse 6, it will say, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me, and they hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they said. Let the Lord rescue him. Let the Lord deliver him, since he delights in him. Verse 17 will say, all my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. Well, let's go back to Matthew chapter 47, or 27, verse 41 for a moment. Or verse 39. Those who passed by hurled insults at him shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're the son of God in the same way the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but can he save himself? He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. What did David say? All who see me mock me. They hurl insults. They shake their head. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. If we go back to Psalm 22, we read in verses 14 and 15, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a pot shed and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. And if we turn to John chapter 19, verse 28, it will say, later knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. Psalm 22, the, my, my mouth is parched, my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Jesus, knowing that scripture would be fulfilled, says, I am thirsty. There's a couple references to this in the Old Testament. One of them is Psalm 22. Parallels continue. Psalm 22, verse 18. They divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. Cast lots, it's a game of chance. It's, you, you roll dice and whoever, whoever gets the highest number gets first pick. So they cast lots 
For David says this is what they did for him. Matthew 27. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. How amazing is that it across approximately 1,000 years difference between David's vision recorded in Psalm 22 and the recorded actions of the death of Jesus should be so similar. And so as I mentioned earlier, when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The people that day, at least the Jewish people, would have understood what he was referencing. They, the, it, the religious leaders, the teachers of the law are gathered there. If anyone else would know, they would know. And so as Jesus declares this, they know this psalm. The people that day, they know, but they also would have understood what Jesus was saying by making this reference. Remember, we, we talked about how it was a messianic psalm. This is a psalm about the coming Messiah. And so he was telling people Psalm 22, that psalm that we all know is about the coming Messiah, that psalm that we all know, that vision that David had about the coming Messiah, that psalm, all of those things that were, that were going to happen, that, that the Messiah was going to go through, you are seeing that happen right here and now. In front of your eyes, this is Psalm 22. As Jesus spoke those words, he was confirming his deity. Jesus was telling the people, you are crucifying the Messiah right now. As he spoke those words, he was making reference to something they all knew and they would say, by him saying that, that's blasphemy. He's claiming to be God. And see, Matthew throughout his gospel shows us again and again that Jesus is the Messiah that was predicted in the Old Testament. And here, Matthew connects the author of Psalm 22, King David, to Jesus. And shows that Jesus was the one who was meant to come complete the work, save his people, and rule in eternity. Jesus' cry of this psalm would have been of a suffering Savior facing death for the most noble cause. This was a different notion than most people's understanding of God. For them, God was unkillable. But yet, here God has become truly vulnerable for the sake of his creation. And when Jesus hangs on the cross, despised suffering and dying, he takes into himself all of our sin. The weight of it is now fully upon Jesus and the reality of God's wrath for sin reveals itself in this moment and here is where Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These words of Jesus, they're not a pleasant phrase. To hear Jesus speak these words, to hear Jesus cry out these words, it's not pleasant. It's full of despair. It was misunderstood by those close by, or it could have been 
And today it can be difficult for us to understand without putting it into its context of Psalm 22. But we can't leave it by itself. Jesus was calling us to the full psalm just as he knew that his followers would understand when they figured out what he had said. Yes, this was a moment of ultimate pain and loss as only the burden of sin could cause. And Psalm 22, as Jesus quotes it, it shows us Jesus' utter dependence upon his Father. Even when he could not feel anything but the weight of the world. But Psalm 22 isn't just a psalm of despair. Psalm 22 isn't just this hard, painful moment. But Psalm 22 also contains the promise of God's deliverance. The promise that there would be resurrection on the other side of death. Some of the closing verses of Psalm 22 give us this incredible promise. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. From dominion, or for dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will, they will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. In this moment, there's the despair of death, but in the words of the psalm that he references, there's the promise of deliverance. There's the promise of victory. There's the promise of even in, the, even in this most difficult moment, the Lord will reign. The Lord will be victorious. And whatever seems to have won, he will crush. Jesus still has his trust in the God of the universe. As Jesus quotes these words, he is saying, God, I trust you. He has submitted to God's will to this very last moment. And we're invited to do the same in our lives, to, to depend on God, to trust in his love and believe that eternal life is offered to us through the sacrifice of Jesus, his son. There's a terrible beauty in this moment that it shows us that God loves us by taking our penalty on the cross and dying in our place. As Psalm 22 says, he has done it. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are so in awe of the sacrifice that you made for us. God, as we remembered your sacrifice through communion this morning, as, as we've, we've read about the sacrifice that you made, God, we are so in awe that you would not just forgive us our sin, 
but that you would take the penalty of all of our sin, that you would look at us for who we truly are and see the sin in our lives and see the awful things we've done, see the terrible things we've done, the times we've fallen short, the times we've missed the mark, the times that we haven't been who we were created to be. And you would look at each one of us and see the truth of all of that. And you would take that and you would put it on yourself. You would take that sin and that shame and you would put it on your son. And as he is crucified and killed, as he pays the penalty for what I've done, as he pays the penalty for what each one of us has done, God, I thank you that in the deepest moments of despair, God, there's always hope. Because in you, we have the victory. And even in this moment, as the enemies of Jesus rejoiced, as hell believed that the, the, the victory had been won. They had done it. They had crucified Jesus. He was not going to set his people free. He was dead. God, I thank you that in that moment, we see your ultimate victory. As you paid the penalty for me, you paid the penalty for all of your sons and daughters, and you rose victorious over death, over hell, over the grave, over sin, and over my sin. And so God, I thank you that you have paid the penalty for each one of our sins. And God, I pray that as we move towards Easter, God, may our hearts be drawn towards what you've done. May we fill the coming days with, with thoughts with pondering, with scripture reading, with, with reflection on what the cross of Calvary means to us today. And God, I pray that you would allow us to not have a apathy build in our lives towards what you did on the cross. But God, as we reflect on the difficulty of these moments, God, may this bring a renewed understanding of what you did for us. And may what you did for us, God, affect our lives today, tomorrow, and every day in the future. That we wouldn't live in the light of a story, but that we would live in the light of the reality of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross of Calvary. May that change us today. May that change us tomorrow and every day. Lord Jesus, we couldn't love you more. And we invite you to come and work in our lives. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. On a hill far away. Thanks again for being a part of this message from Hillside Church. We pray that God was able to speak to you through what was shared. We're so grateful to be able to share God's word with our church community and family. And that includes you. And we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Hillside Airdrie. You can contact us through email at info at hillsideairdrie.ca. Or you can go to hillsideairdrie.ca and click on contact us from the main menu. Or you can find our pastoral team contact by clicking on our pastors from the Our Church drop-down menu. Our vision for everyone that shares in Hillside Church is that they would know God, know his hope, know his purpose, and know his power in their lives. And we pray this message ministered to you. At Hillside Church, we're a family not by blood, but a family that's been bought by blood. As family we go.
Say 